Um, good evening, everyone. And today we are, you know, a few days ago in the show, I, I mentioned it's a beautiful parsha. Why is it so beautiful? We learn about such beauty, miraculous beauty. You have this raging sea, the Red Sea, and all of a sudden it splits and the Jewish people walk through it, but they didn't just walk through uh, a sea. They walked through on dry land and these beautiful trees miraculously sprouted on the sides of, uh, of the aisle that they walked in through and there was these luscious fruits and the children were able to pick the fruits and eat them. It was actually a party. While they were walking through the Red Sea, it was a party. And they came to the other side and they looked behind them and they're wondering, oh, perhaps the Egyptians are, are also going to have this VIP access, this VIP trip through the sea. But then they see that the, that the Egyptians, the water fell upon them, it drowned them. And um, finally, at that point, they knew that they were finally free from the Egyptians. They were never going back to slavery. And now they could truly breathe a sigh of relief. And at this point, they were able to celebrate their redemption. What's interesting, that when the Jewish people left Egypt, we have no indication that as they left Egypt, they said, thank you, God. On the 15th of Nisan, when finally Pharaoh said, get out of here, and they didn't have time to allow their dough to rise, and they baked their matzahs, and they ran out, we don't find anywhere in the Torah, or even in the Talmud, that the Jewish people... Uh, you know, got together and sang a song of thanksgiving. It took them a full week to do so because they knew that the way they had told Pharaoh they're leaving was to give him like this, this, uh, it was kind of a trick. He said, uh, we're only leaving for three days, right? The entire time when Moses was speaking to Pharaoh, he said, allow us to travel for three days in the, in the desert. We're going to uh, sacrifice sacrifices to God Almighty. So when the Jewish people left, it was really on borrowed time. They really had to be back in three days, but there was no intention of being back in three days. And in fact, there's a very fascinating discussion of why, why Moses presented the, the, I say the journey of the Jewish people to Pharaoh as, as just something for three days. You know, if, if you would tell Pharaoh, you have to let us go forever, Pharaoh would also be forced to allow them to go after, after dealing with 10 uh, terrible plagues. But anyway, that's for a different class. That's for a different discussion. The point is that when the Jewish people left, they knew that they were not out of danger. There was always the, the possibility that Pharaoh would chase after them. In fact, Pharaoh sent uh, what's called in Hebrew, Dalturin. Uh, he sent uh, agents uh, to accompany them uh, and to remind them that after three days, they have to come back. When they started to make a ruckus and say, hey, you have to come back, you gave your word. They basically... Uh, gave them the riot act. You know, they, they basically told them to get out of here and, and they left and they came back to Pharaoh and, and the agents were the ones to tell Pharaoh that the, that the Israelites are gone forever. So that's when Pharaoh decided to chase the Jewish people. So that entire week, the Jewish people were not out of danger. Finally, a week later, after the miracles, the splitting of the Red Sea, now the Egyptians are completely gone. They were able to sing a song of joy to God Almighty. After the Torah describes in great detail the miracle of the splitting of the sea, and then the song, the reaction of the Jewish people during that time, the Torah says the following, Moses led Israel away from the Red Sea. And they went down into the desert of Shur. They walked for three days in the desert, but did not find water. That's the verse. Now in the Hebrew, and I'm sorry that I did not put the Hebrew wording here in the, in the handout, 
the term is like this. When we want to say the words, Moses led Israel away, the term is vayasa. Now, vayasa is a very interesting type of expression. Vayasa means that Moses had to like push them away. He didn't just have to say, okay, everyone follow me. That would just be vayisa. And they traveled and they followed Moses. Moses led them away. Like, you know, he was just walking and they followed. But the true meaning of vayasa indicates that, that Moses had to persuade them to leave. He had to force them to leave. And in fact, Rashi right over there says the following. Let's read the Rashi. Moses led Israel away, literally made Israel journey. He forced them to journey. Vayasa. He forced them. He led them away against their will. What's going on? Why would they want to stay there? That's like coming in, that's like saying, um, the, the liberators came to Auschwitz. They liberated the, 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 the Jews that were in Auschwitz. And then they had to force them out of the camp. Wouldn't they be running to leave the camp? So here the, the Jewish people are standing in front of the mangled bodies of their oppressors, which that itself could bring a trauma to them, just reminding themselves of the Egyptians. And what happens? Moses, they're not running away from there. Moses has to force them away against their will. That's the expression of Rashi. It was like Baal Karkham, against their will. Why? For the Egyptians had adorned their steeds with ornaments of gold, silver, and precious stones, and the Israelites were finding them in the sea. <laughs> there was a lot of treasures there. They were on a treasure hunt. They were having fun, so they didn't want to leave. Rashi continues, the plunder at the sea was greater than the plunder in Egypt, as it is written, we will make you rows of gold with studs of silver. That's a quote in the Song of Songs. And that's an indication that that's telling us that it's a description of what was going on at the Red Sea. And the, the, the treasures that were available to the Jewish people at the Red Sea far exceeded the treasures that they had taken with them out of Egypt. Therefore, he had to lead them against their will. Okay. Now, this is actually a very... Uh, interesting type of uh, teaching. You know, the Jewish people, th th this is what it seems like at face value. The Jews were just now saved from the, from the clutches of the Egyptians. Not only that, they see a lot of gold and silver. So just like anyone who sees a lot of gold and silver doesn't want to leave there, he wants to collect it for himself. The Jewish people were busy collecting all of these, uh, all of these treasures and Moses had to force them to go away from them. Now, this is very uncharacteristic of the Jewish people in general, and especially the way they were at that moment. What I mean by that? Even if you would want to say, come on, the Jews, they're humans, you know, they're the regular people, and just like anyone, if they would find, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars floating around in front of them, they wouldn't run away to go to their meeting. They would hold up their important meeting and collect the money so that they have the money, and that's it. So the same thing here, the, the Jewish people, they're humans, they're not angels. They see the money in front of them. They, they want to collect it. The thing is, though, that if we uh, look carefully at the story, at the narrative, we'll see that it is so uncharacteristic of the Jewish people. Why? Number one, the Jewish people at that time had just experienced a very profound spiritual experience. When they were stuck at the Red Sea, and the sea split, and they survived, it wasn't simply, there was a crisis, and God took care of it. 
The splitting of the sea was not just, oh, there's an opening, let's run through. It was a tremendous divine revelation. It was the type of revelation that is pretty close to the revelation at Sinai. Types of revelations that most people never had and never will have. So where do we see this uh, idea? In the song that the Jewish people sang to God Almighty after the, the splitting of the sea, the second verse of the song goes as follows. That's the Shemot 12.2. The Eternal's strength and His vengeance were my salvation. This is my God, and I will make Him a habitation, the God of my Father, and I will ascribe to Him an exaltation. Yeah, it sounds like a beautiful song, right? But, it, but notice, they say something very powerful. They say, this is my God. What is your God? What were they looking at? So Rashi tells us, this is my God. He revealed himself in his glory to them, to the Israelites. And they pointed at him with their finger. Now this is crazy. You can't see God. God is not something physical that your, your flesh and blood eyes should be able to, to, to see and that your flesh... You know, your, your, your finger that's bone and flesh, you should be able to point that. But no, that's what he says. That at that point, what the Jewish people experienced at the splitting of the sea was the type of revelation that they actually saw God to the point that they were able to point their finger at him and say, this is him. And the Talmud continues, the Medrash continues, and Rashi quotes this, by the sea, even a maidservant perceived what prophets did not perceive. But the greatest prophets throughout our history did not have the opportunity to experience every single Jew and even their slaves, their maids, anyone that had some type of connection to the Jewish people had that type of revelation, had that type of spiritual experience. So let me ask you, after having such an experience, would money really make a difference to you? Is that something that you would be so excited about? But things get even more complicated. And that is, where was, um, where was Moses taking them? Where was he forcing them to continue traveling? The Jewish people were on a mission. They had a destination. They didn't just leave Egypt. Oh, we're going. They had a des destination. And by the way, their destination was not Israel. That was not their first destination. They all knew that the first destination after leaving Egypt was Mount Sinai in order to receive the Torah. How did they know this? Because when God hired Moses, appointed Moses to be the leader, to be the redeemer, he had a long conversation with him and he explained what's going to happen. He told him, we're not just taking them out to freedom, we're going somewhere. Let's read the next verse. And he said, for I will be with you, and this is the sign for you that it was I who sent you. When you take the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. The first meeting that God had with Moses was on Mount Sinai. That's where the burning bush was. And God tells him that the reason why I'm sending you is in order to bring them here. Let's look at Rashi. Concerning what you asked, what merit do the Israelites have that they should go out of Egypt? I have a great thing dependent on this exodus. For at the end of three months from their exodus from Egypt, they are destined to receive the Torah on this mountain. Nope. So the Jewish people, they just got over the crisis. They went through the sea. They just had this profound revelation of God to the point that they were able to point to God and say, 
this is God. So they are now on a level which is even higher than the prophets. How is it possible that people are on a level of the prophets? Should dilly-dally, should tarry from reaching their destination of receiving the Torah at Sinai in order to collect a few dollars? Not a few dollars, a lot of money, right? What's going on here? What is this conversation going on between Moses and the Jewish people? Um, you know, they're, they're busy collecting money. Moses says, hey, we got to go somewhere. You know, we're, we're late. We have to move. And they say, no, 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 we, we want to stay here. And they have to really force them away. What's the deal? Also, by the way, what, how, how, how can Moses force them away? You ever thought about this? You're talking about a nation of millions. And there's one Moses. Moses forced a nation of millions away from the sea? <laughs> Oh, by the way, these millions are seeing treasures that could enrich them so many ways. And he was able to force them out. What did he do? He, uh, he used electric rods. What happened here? He prodded them out. All right. So first, let's deal with, uh, let's deal with this story on a more practical level. What was going through their minds? What was the conversation? The Jewish people didn't need money. I'll give you a few reasons why they did not need any money. Number one, they had a lot of money. Each one of them was extremely wealthy. Uh, in fact, how were they wealthy? I mean, they were slaves right before. And how were they healthy? How were they wealthy? So like this, when, when God told Abraham that his descendants are going to be enslaved, they're going to suffer for many years, he told them, however, when they leave the land of their oppressors, they're going to take all of the riches, all of the treasures of that land, they will be enriched. Fine, so that was part of the promise to Abraham. When God spoke to Moses, he said, tell the Jewish people, um, look at the, the, next, uh, the next quote on page 2, Shemot 11.2, please speak into the ears of the people and let them borrow each man from his friend and each woman from her friend, silver vessels and golden vessels. This is what he was telling him in Mitzrayim, but then, in, in chapter 3, he says even more than that, each man, each woman shall borrow from her neighbor and from the dweller in her house silver and gold objects and garments, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall empty out Egypt. This was like a command to the Jewish people. They must take everything out. They must empty the place out of all of its money, all of its treasures. And if you go down to the, the, last, the last quote here from the Talmud of Bechorot, it's a very interesting uh, teaching of the Talmud. In last week's parasha, uh, towards the end of the parasha, where God is giving several mitzvahs to the Jewish people, so there's the mitzvah of, uh, of, of Pesach, the mitzvah of not having chametz, the mitzvah of the Paschal Lamb, and it all makes sense that it's coming into uh, the story, coming as, a, as part of the story of the Exodus, we learn the many different mitzvot that are associated with the Exodus. Uh, the mitzvah of tefillin, one of the reasons, the main reason why we put on tefillin is because tefillin reminds us of the exodus from Egypt because the, the chapters that are in the tefillin speak about the exodus from Egypt. And in fact, the expression of the Talmud is that when someone is going to see the tefillin on a Jew's head, they're going to talk about the miracles of the exodus. Then comes another mitzvah, pidyon haben, that if a Jew has a firstborn son, that son needs to be redeemed from the Kohen. And the Torah explains 
because since on the night of Exodus, God killed all the firstborn Egyptians and he saved all the firstborn Israelites, with this miracle, God acquired, so to speak, the firstborn Israelites for all generations. And whenever someone's going to have a firstborn son, they need to, they need to redeem him, they need to buy him, acquire him back from God, who is God's representative in the Jewish people, the Kohen. He is the priest, he is the one that serves God on behalf of the Jewish people. And therefore, when the, when the firstborn son is 30 days old, there's a whole ceremony where the father gives the Kohen five silver coins, whatever. It's a whole story about the, how, how, to, uh, how to redeem the firstborn, and there's a blessing that's made for it, and they say the blessing, Shechianu. It's a whole to-do. It's a big deal. In fact, there are certain families that, uh, for whatever reason, they don't have a Pidina Ben in their family. It could be even for generations. For generations, they don't have a Pidina Ben. I think in, in my immediate family, we haven't had a Pidina Ben yet, right? So seven of us all had girls first. So <laughs> none of us had a Pidina Ben. Uh, who knows? Maybe Leah will have a, a firstborn son. Then we'll have, you know, we'll have a party of a Pidina Ben. But sometimes in a family, you can have three or four generations where just Pidina Ben doesn't happen. Um, so that's a very special mitzvah. And, and that mitzvah is very clearly connected to the exodus from Egypt because that was the, the, the it's a commemoration or it's a result of the of the of the of the plague of the, the killing of the firstborn Egyptians and God saved the firstborn Israelites. So therefore we have this mitzvah of Pidan Abed. But then the Torah says something interesting. And he says, the firstborn of uh, your cattle and your sheep and your sheep, those are also going to belong to God and you should bring them as sacrifices to God. And firstborn donkeys must be redeemed. Cattle and sheep, which are kosher, the firstborn of the cattle and the sheep, they have to be brought as a sacrifice in the Holy Temple. All right, cute, nice. And it's also associated with, um, with uh, the, the, the story of the Exodus because the gods of the Egyptians were their cattle and sheep. And when God was killing the firstborn Egyptians, he was also, you know, how do you say, attacking the idols of, of the Egyptians. But what's the deal with the donkeys? Why must a firstborn donkey need to be redeemed? So the Talmud, the Bechorot, Bechorot means the firstborns. So that's the, that's the, the, the tractate of the Talmud that deals with all the laws associated with firstborn animals uh, that have to either be brought as sacrifices in the Holy Temple or that need to be redeemed, like the firstborn donkeys. So the Gemara returns to discussing the redemption of firstborn donkeys. Rabbi Hanina said, I asked Rabbi Eliezer in the great study hall, in what way are firstborn donkeys different from firstborn horses and camels, i.e. other non-kosher animals which are not redeemed? If someone has a, a horse and that horse gives birth to a firstborn horse, there's nothing you got to do with it. So donkeys are also not kosher. So why specifically were donkeys, you know, uh, exclusively the ones that their firstborn needs to be redeemed? Rabbi Eliezer said to me, it is a Torah edict. That's number one. That's what the Torah decided. And furthermore, donkeys assisted the Jewish people at their time of their exodus from Egypt. As there was not one member of the Jewish people that did not have 90 Nubian donkeys with him, which were considered to be of superior quality. What were these donkeys doing? Laden with the silver and gold of the Egyptians. Here we see something fascinating. 
if you want to talk about important details of Exodus, all right, so you have the killing of the firstborn. That's a very important detail. That was the one that broke Pharaoh. You want to talk about God destroying the gods of the Egyptians? That's a very important point here because the whole idea, the whole drama that was unfolding here with the Egyptians was in order to transform their perspective, to prove that their idols are worthless and that they should only, they should only believe in God. And what's another thing? The fact that the Jewish people were told by God they should empty out Egypt of all of its treasures. And how did they carry all these treasures out of Egypt? They had each one, each Jew. So even if we would take the most uh, conservative number, 600,000, let's just say 600,000. In truth, you had several million. You had several million Jews walking out of Egypt. And each one of them had 90 donkeys laden with gold and silver. So every Jew was already extremely rich. Do you want to tell me that the Jewish people needed more money? What's going on here? But here's the deal. The Jewish people didn't need the money. That's not what they wanted. But they had a mitzvah. What was the mitzvah? They were told, they were commanded by God, empty out Egypt from all of its treasures. That's a mitzvah. They were told to do so. They were told that the reason why they're still here in Egypt is because they still have to take on all of those treasures. And God set up a system that in the, in the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, the Egyptians, it will be dark for them. They'll be stuck in their homes and the Jewish people are going to have light. And they were told to go into all of their neighbors' homes and to see where all of their treasures were. And when they, they, they made, they just, they, they uh, how do you say, they, they, they surveyed the terrain. They surveyed everyone's house. And when they came, when it was time to leave, they came, oh, let's give, give us some treasures. I don't have anything. Everyone says, I don't have anything. He says, no, no. In that cupboard, you have this. And in this place, you have that. And under the bed, you have this. Actually, the, the, the Egyptians were very pleased that the Jews did not take their money when they were stuck. It's interesting. The Jews were told, go around, survey the area, see where all of the money is, but don't take a thing. So they have to give it to you. The point is that the Jewish people had a mitzvah to empty out Egypt of all of its treasures. They had done a tremendous job. The fact that every Jew had 90 Nubian donkeys laden with all of their treasures, that was a great accomplishment. But guess what happened? When the Jewish people saw that the Egyptians were killed and everything was washed up onto the shore, they realized, one second, there's even more money that has to be taken from them. We didn't do our job. We didn't finish the job. And in fact, there's some commentators that ask the question, one second, if the Jewish people emptied the amount of all of their, uh, all of their gold and silver and, and treasures, so how did the Egyptians have treasures? So he says they had matmuniyas, they had buried treasures. The Egyptians were extremely rich and they had buried treasures. They had, they had accounts in Switzerland saying that it was, it was un, unreachable. The Jews weren't able to get it. Even during, the, during the, the plague of darkness, they weren't able to see it. and They weren't able to, to catch it. And the Egyptians, when they, were, when they were chasing after the Jewish people, they were so confident that they were going to win, that they were going to trap the Jews and bring them back to Egypt. They wanted to celebrate. So they took all of their treasures out and they, they covered their horses and their chariots with all of their treasures. And then, you know, we, we know what happened after that. They all died. But here, a tremendous treasure washed up onto the shore. So the Jewish people, what do they see? They don't see money. They see a mitzvah. They don't need the money. <laughs> they have. They have plenty. Not only that. They're going straight to the land of Israel. That's a different thing. They're going straight to the land of Israel. They're going to be in the desert. They have no need for more money. But they knew that they had a mitzvah. And the mitzvah was to empty out Egypt. And if Egypt still has money and that money is right in front of us, we have to go and collect it. 
So the fact that they were so involved in collecting the money, that wasn't because they were distracted. That was because this was the mitzvah of the moment. But then comes Moses and he says, no, no, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Then you could ask, you could ask like this. But they knew that they have to go to, to Sinai. So how, I understand. So, so there's a mitzvah to collect all of the money of the Egyptians. But now you're already on the other side of the, of the sea and you can go to Sinai. So why are you holding up? Why are you stopping from going to Sinai? And instead you're investing yourself in, in doing the mitzvah of collecting the money. So, so this actually comes into a very interesting halachic question. If you have a choice, either to learn Torah or to do a mitzvah, what should you do? It's a halachic question. And in fact, let's read Maimonides. Maimonides has a whole section, several chapters dealing with the laws of Torah. So on page two, in the middle of the page, Maimonides, Talmud Torah, chapter three, uh, none of the other mitzvot can be equated to the study of Torah. Rather, the study of Torah can be equated to all the mitzvot because study leads to deed. Therefore, study takes precedence over deed in all cases. Wow, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. So that just makes the question stronger. The Jewish people have in front of them two options, either to learn Torah to go to Mount Sinai and receive the Torah, or to stay here and finish off collecting all of that money, doing a mitzvah. So how could they choose to do a mitzvah instead of learning Torah? So let's go to the next. You know, every rule has an exception to the rule. So the, the, the Maimonides continues and he says, the following rules apply when a person is confronted with the performance of a mitzvah and the study of Torah. If the mitzvah can be performed by another individual, he should not interrupt his studies. If not, he should perform the mitzvah and then return to his studies. So this is an important point to know, that if you have, let's say in front of you, there's an opportunity um, to save a life, okay? There's someone who just fainted, right? And you're sitting and learning. If there's no one around to go and save them, you stop learning and go and save the life. But if there are three doctors in the room that could take care of the guy that just fainted, there's no reason for you to stop studying Torah. What? You're going to stop studying Torah to stand over them? And let's say you're also a doctor. Well, in that case, when it comes to saving a life, the doctor should always close the book and always run to it because you never know the doctor might be the, the right one that could actually do the right thing. Uh, so let's try to find a different example. Let's say there's a person that needs to be helped uh, from, from the door to his chair. Right, an elderly person walked in, and they need to be helped to their chair. If you're the only one in the room, if you're going to sit and continue studying Torah, but there's a mitzvah of of honoring and respecting this elderly person and helping them get to their chair, that's inappropriate. You should stop learning Torah and go and help this person and go back to study. But if there are many other people in the room, and there's actually someone that's standing next to this person who is busy with something else, and he's standing right next to him, and you're much further away and you're studying, there's no reason for you to stop studying in order to help this person to this chair. There's plenty of people right there that can help that person to their chair. And therefore, it's not appropriate to stop studying Torah. However, the rule is, if it's a mitzvah that cannot be done by anyone else, you should stop studying and do it. So let's put ourselves in the minds of the Jewish people standing at, at, at the, the scene. They see in front of them two options. Either rushing to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai, Torah study, 
or the mitzvah of collecting the money from the Egyptians. What was the mitzvah? The mitzvah was that the money from the Egyptians should leave Egyptian hands and now be in Jewish hands. Is there anyone else that could do it besides for the Jews? No. So who has to do the mitzvah? The Jewish people. Even at the risk of delaying their arrival at Sinai to receive the Torah. Because the rule is, if you're faced with the option of doing the mitzvah or, doing, or, or learning Torah, if the mitzvah can't be done by anyone else, you don't learn Torah and you do the mitzvah. So the Jewish people had a very solid halachic reason for staying there. But then when Moses came and told them, no, you have to go now and travel to Mount Sinai, they listened. They didn't now listen. Of course they listened. But they listened in a way that they were being forced to go. What does it mean that they were forced to go? In their minds, based on their understanding of Torah, and it was a real, it was a true understanding. They, they knew uh, how to weigh this question of mitzvah versus Torah. And based on their understanding, Torah should wait. And they should finish collecting everything from the, from the Egyptians. When Moses told them that they should, they should stop collecting the money and go to, the, to, to Mount Sinai, they listened. But they did so because they were completely... Um, null, they, they had completely nullified themselves. They had surrendered themselves to, to Moses. They did it with what's called in Hebrew, Kabbalat O. They had accepted upon themselves the yoke of heaven, even that they're, that they're going to follow the word of God, even if they don't understand it. And so they know that when Moses tells them something, this is the word of God. And they're going to do it. But the fact of the matter is that they don't really understand why they're doing it. Because according to their Torah understanding, really they should be collecting the money that's there at the sea. In fact, it goes even deeper. When you talk about the idea of the Jewish people emptying out all the treasures from Egypt, it wasn't just about money changing hands. It wasn't just about enriching the Jewish people, so to speak. Those who are familiar with Kabbalah, with the mystical teachings of the Torah, and especially with Hasidus, Hasidic philosophy, Judaism teaches us that everything in this world has a spark of God, has a piece of God with it. Everything. But here's the deal. Many things the peace of God that's there is not really expressed because it's not used for a divine purpose. When someone uses money or food or anything in this world for a divine purpose, they are elevating, they are revealing the divinity that's inherent in this physical object or in this time period or in this place. So by doing what God wants with physical objects, with money, we are actually redeeming God. We're, we are allowing the God that we're, we're allowing the peace of God, the part of God that is in this specific thing, to be revealed and to be expressed. The reason why the Jewish people were told to take all of the money out of Egypt was because all of that money possessed a tremendous amount of divinity. There was a lot of God that was stuck in that money, and so long as that money remained under the control of the Egyptians. The divinity that was there was stifled. It was not revealed. It was impossible to be expressed. So when the Jewish people were emptying out Egypt of the money, they weren't just enriching themselves or fulfilling a command of God. 
they were they were um, I say they were accomplishing tremendous cosmic things. They they were redeeming God. They were redeeming the divinity that had been trapped in all of this money, in all of this physicality for so many years. So when the Jewish people were standing at the sea, right after this tremendous spiritual experience of seeing God and being able to point the finger and say, this is God, when they saw money that belonged to the Egyptians and they knew that they had a mitzvah to take that money, they didn't just see the mitzvah of taking money from the Egyptians. They saw what they were accomplishing through it. They saw that by every penny that leaves Egyptian hands and comes into Jewish hands, they're actually causing the divinity within that money to be elevated because it was a mitzvah from God to do so. So on the contrary, because they had such a, a, such a great spiritual experience, that's why they were so involved in what they were doing. Not because they wanted or needed money, but because they saw the great spiritual advantage of, 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 of collecting that money. Then comes Moses and tells them, stop. No more. Now we have to go to Sinai. I said, but one second. There's so much of God that's still stuck there. What's going on? What's wrong with you? I said, but God doesn't want you to take it. Okay? Once they know that God doesn't want them to take it, they realize that whatever they're going to take won't help anyone. So now they leave. But it's still Balkarcham. It's still against their will. It's against their understanding. It's against their perception. It's against everything that makes sense to them at that moment. Why? Because they knew and they saw and they felt the great accomplishment that the collecting of that, that the collection of that money would accomplish. But at that, but once Moshe Rabbeinu told them to stop, they realized that they wouldn't accomplish anything by collecting it. It's like, for example, for example, um, matzah, eating matzah on Passover. So Kabbalah teaches us that when you eat matzah on Passover, it's called the bread of faith. By eating that matzah, you strengthen your faith in God. Nope. So some might say, if matzah is the bread of faith, today is the 14th of Shvat, today was 13th, tonight is the 14th of Shvat, let me eat some matzah. I think I need a little bit of a, a faith boost. I need, I need, you know, you know, we take a little, uh, you know, the tetanus shots, you know, we take the boosters. So I need, you know, I need a booster. Uh, Pesach was so far back and, and that uh, faith in God that was strengthened then with the matzah that I ate on Pesach, I think I need to, you know, renew it. I need to re-energize it. So I'm going to take some matzah and I'm going to eat it. My friend, you eat matzah today, it doesn't strengthen your faith. That magic, that specialty of matzah that strengthens faith only applies on Pesach. Doesn't apply before, doesn't apply after. Same thing here. When God told the Jewish people, go, empty out Egypt. Apparently, this only applied at a certain time period. But once the Jewish people crossed the sea, and now they have to go to Sinai, now no more. And therefore the Jewish people listened to what Mahesha Rabbeinu said. And they did so joyfully. How do I know they did so joyfully? They were counting down to receiving the Torah. They weren't upset when they left, but they did so. And it was like they were being forced to get out of there because their minds and their hearts were so focused on doing what God wants that to pull them away from that, even though they did so joyfully, it was a, it was, it was a concept of forcing them away. Now, this is, in general, this is a very profound way of, of looking at life. There's a story of uh, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Shalom Doiv Ber. So, uh, you know, in the last class, 
we described how the Rebbe would teach Torah in the context of the Fabrengian, and there was different types of Torah teachings. Um, so generations back, so we're talking about the, 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 the village of Lubavitch, uh, which had a yeshiva. There was about several hundred young students that were there. I mean, we're talking about teenagers or older, you know, uh, younger 20s. So the, the custom was that the fifth Lubavitch Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, the way he would teach Hasidus, the way he would give over a mimer, the way he would deliver a mimer, the schedule was that every Friday night uh, before the prayers, uh, so the, the, the study hall was set up, you know, with bleachers and everyone was standing around and there was a certain table with a chair, and the Rebbe Rashab would come in and he would, he would uh, deliver a mimer. It would take 45 minutes, an hour. I mean, it was, uh, it was a tremendous experience. But typically, before they would sing the mimer, they would before they before the rebbe would say the mimer, they would sing a song, or several songs. And uh, one time, the rebbe Rashab, he noticed that they were singing the song quickly. It was it was it was a slow uh, Hasidic tune, but the, but the boys were singing it quickly. Why? They wanted to get to the meat, you know. They wanted they wanted to get to the mimer. So when they finished singing their hurried song, the rebbe Rashab did not say a mimer. Rabbi Hashab, he said a sikha, he started to talk and he explained that in general in life, the preparation for something is also important. When you're preparing for something, it's not just, oh, let's just get rid of this and let's move on to the more exciting thing. The preparation is something for itself. And therefore, if you're supposed to sing a song now, be there fully. Don't think, oh, when will we get past the song and now we're going to learn the mime. No, no, no. If right now it's the song, it's singing time, sing. Sing with your whole heart. Sing slowly. Sing with a passion. Then once we finish the song, it's time for the mimer. Then obviously you should focus your mind and your heart to absorb everything that the Rebbe is saying. And with this, the, the, the Rebbe Hashab, you know, this is a profound lesson. There's another interesting story of, of the previous Rebbe. That once, um, the, the, actually the Rebbe, who was the, the previous Rebbe's son-in-law. So the story happened with him. The Rebbe said like this, that once he, it was right before the previous Rebbe had to go on a trip. And the trip was, it wasn't a pleasurable trip. There was, there was issues that had to be taken care of. We're talking about, you know, issues that, that uh, had, they, they would affect the, the entire Jewish community in Europe. And so you would imagine that the previous Rebbe would be under a lot of pressure, etc. And in, uh, in several minutes, I had to go to the train. And the Rebbe walked into the Friedrich Rebbe's study, and he sees how the previous Rebbe is, is sitting and writing in his journal, but, but a, a totally different topic. Whatever, he, was, he was involved in something that had nothing to do with the trip, nothing to do with, with the issue that they were dealing with, and he was completely absorbed in it. And, and as, as if he had no other concern in the world. So the Rebbe asked him, like, it's, it's possible to, to live this way? Like, how do you do it? So he said like this, my father, the Rebbe Rashab, once told me that there's a very well-known uh, halachic uh, sage, who's known as the Rashba. So he said that he, he was a man that uh, he had a yeshiva, had many students who would give a class every day, and he had a lot of responsa, and he was a doctor, and several other things that he had. And in addition to all of this, and his, his, you know, his, his very, very busy schedule, he always managed to take a half-hour walk every day. He always managed to do so. And he explained, why is that? Because whatever he is doing, he is involved with it fully. He doesn't think about what's next on the schedule. 
So if right now it's time for prayer, he doesn't think about the class he's going to give to the boys. If right now it's time for class, he doesn't think about the halakhic question that had to be answered that was going to transform an entire community. And, whatever. and if now it's time to walk, he's walking. Yeah, it could be he's thinking a lot of things while he's walking. But he doesn't, now it's the time to walk. So the Friedrich Gerber told the Rebbe, this is, this is the idea. So what, when did the Rebbe say this story? The Rebbe said this story, it was, it was 1970. 1970 marked 20 years after the passing of the previous Rebbe and 20 years of the Rebbe's leadership. That was the first time that a charter, a charter plane from Israel was arranged for like, I don't know how many Hasidim, but perhaps more than 100 Hasidim came to America to, to mark that occasion with the Rebbe. Um, I mean, the charters had been done previously for the holidays, but this was the first time that it was done for the 10th of Shvat. It was a very big deal. And it was a very interesting experience, etc. We're not going to get into the details of that. However, um, I think it was the 20th of Shvat, so 10 days, you know, when you, when you traveled from Israel to America in those days, you came for more than just five days. You came for about two weeks. So when it was time for them, when it was the, the day of their departure, so the Rebbe held a Fabrengen to bid them farewell. It was the middle of the day. It was not a regular time. It was the middle of the day. It was an afternoon. Uh, let's say it was like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. The Rebbe started the Febregen. And the flight was, let's say, I don't know, 4 o'clock. And during the Febregen, the Rebbe said, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of people sitting over here. They're on pins and needles. They're looking at the clock. Why? They don't want to miss their flight. The Rebbe was laughing. And the Rebbe said this story. What was the message I was telling them? Don't worry. You're not going to miss your flight. Right now, you're at a Febregen. Be fully present. Be present at the Febregen. It's time to go to the flight. You'll go to the flight. That's fine. You'll be fully present in the taxi, in the bus, or whatever it is that takes you to the airport. But right now, be fully present here. The Jewish people at Sinai, I mean, I'm sorry, the Jewish people at the, at the, the splitting of the sea, they were fully present at what's going on. They were fully present to the point that when they saw that there is more gold and silver that needs to be collected, they threw themselves into it with gusto, with a divine type of gusto, with a spiritual gusto. Why? Because they have a mitzvah to empty out Egypt of all of its gold and silver. You know how we know how involved they were in this mitzvah? Because when Moses told them, hey guys, it's time to go to Sinai. And by the way, Sinai was the, was, was the, was the, the real destination. All of them wanted to go to Sinai. The gold and silver was really an afterthought. When they left Egypt, they started to count down to Sinai. And that's why today, after pa Passover, the second day of Passover, we start counting Spirata Omer in preparation for the giving of the Torah. All the Jews, that what they wanted was, let's get to Sinai as fast as possible. But when they stood at the Red Sea and they just had this divine revelation and they realized the great accomplishments that fulfilling the mitzvah of emptying out Egypt of its gold and silver will accomplish, they threw themselves into it with a gusto to the point that when Moses told them, guys, it's time to go to the real treasure. It's time to go to the real destination, which is Sinai. They had to force them away. They went, they left, and they threw themselves into going into, into Sinai with gusto, with excitement. But when they were at the sea and they were collecting the money, they were fully engaged in that. So what we learn from here is that, and, and, and why were they fully engaged? Because this is what God wants from me now. Now God wants me to go to Sinai, I'll go. I'll be fully engaged in that. So if you want to know, how is it possible to be fully present in whatever you are doing? Here's one way, here's one tactic. If what you are doing is something that God wants you to do and you appreciate this mitzvah, that's the first step in becoming 
fully engaged in this. Now you'll say, one second, does that mean my entire day has to be always revolving around Torah study and mitzvahs? So when am I going to exercise? And when am I going to eat breakfast, lunch, and supper? And when am I going to do business? And when am I going to socialize, etc.? You know what the answer is? All of those could be mitzvahs as well. If they're done properly, according to Jewish law, and they're done at the right time, then they're a mitzvah. If they're at the wrong time, if, they're, if it's the inappropriate time, inappropriate place, then it's not a mitzvah. But if it's done at the appropriate time and the appropriate place, that is the first thing you need in order to be fully present in whatever you're doing. And it could be a conversation that you're having with a friend. And for whatever reason, this conversation is going to um, engender more goodwill. It's going to help out another, etc. Be fully present in that conversation. Don't think about you have to run to the post office, run to this. As soon as you finish with the conversation, okay, now we have to go to the post office because we have to, you know, do run an errand, make sure, you know, we have, we have to pay the bills in order that we should have electricity and have heating, etc. This is all part of serving God. And when we do that, we can be sure that when we're going to study Torah, when we're going to pray, when we're going to do a mitzvah, we're going to be fully engaged in that. So essentially, the very first thing that we learn post-Red Sea, is that fireworks, drama, it's all fun and exciting. But you know what? In order to be a true servant of God, in order to be a, in order to be a healthy Jew, you need to be completely engaged in whatever you are doing. And when it's time to do something else, it should feel as if you're being forced away from that previous thing. Of course you're going to do the other thing because that's what needs to be done now. You have to be forced away from doing it. The Rebbe spoke about this. In, in 1991, the Rebbe started to speak very strongly about the fact that the, the arrival of Mashiach is so imminent and that you know, the, the conclusion of everything that we're doing, it's, it's really, it, it's in front of our eyes and it's going to happen. And so people started to have questions. They said, you know, if we're already holding on Mashiach, so why should I even start to strategize how I'm going to build a large synagogue or how I'm going to uh, start a business? If in maybe days, minutes, weeks, Mashiach will come, all of that will be irrelevant. What do I need it for? And the Rebbe said this, the story of the Rebbe Rashab, and, and he said like this. He says, so long that Mashiach is not yet here, so long as we're still in exile, we're still here, we're still dealing with the day-to-day -day, uh, situations, we're still dealing with challenges, you have to be fully engaged in exile. Be fully engaged in serving God here and now. And if serving God here and now demands that we should make long-term plans, that we should think big, that we should build and invest here, that's what we need to do. The moment Mashiach will come, we're going to be very involved in Mashiach. And by the way, what we invest in today, what we build today, it's not necessarily going to, it, it for sure won't vanish when Mashiach will come. It will still be relevant. Don't worry, your investments today, the businesses you build today, the contacts that you have today, the accomplishments of today are not going to disappear. Mashiach is not this like this, this, this fantasy reality that's going to come and, and all of a sudden just wipe away all of history. So even though we are anticipating the arrival of Mashiach any moment and we want it to come, just like the Jewish people, they anticipated reaching Sinai and they wanted to do it as fast as possible. But they're not yet at Sinai and they see an opportunity to do a mitzvah here, they got fully engaged in that. The same thing is for us. Even though we anticipate and hope for a better time, for a greater revelation, for a greater conclusion to everything that's going on, so long as we're here, we need to deal with our current situation in the best way that we can and with all of the passion, energy that we can muster because that's the real way 
to serve God. Any questions? How are we practicing today? What do you mean, how do we practice it today? To get more money to build a, build a nice course, place another, for Hashem. Today, today, a person shouldn't say, why should I start a business? Mashiach comes tomorrow. I'm not even going to want to be involved in the business. I'd like to study Torah a whole day, right? And the answer is no. Build that business. Be successful. Build up a career. Why? Because right now we're here. You have no idea when Mashiach will come. But even if you are so confident Mashiach will come tomorrow, we'll deal with Mashiach. We'll deal with Mashiach. We'll, we'll deal with the Mashiach reality when it's here. So long as Mashiach is not here, we're going to deal with this reality, and we have to deal with it with the whole excitement, with the whole passion that we have at our disposal. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for joining. Any other questions or conversations? All righty. Thank you, Rabbi. You are welcome.